calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Realm Presents... The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Episode 5. The fanciest dress Knox owns is a slinky little green silk number, gifted to her by her ex-husband, not long after they married. He always said it made her look like Ethel Moses, but green is Knox's least favorite color, and she's not inclined towards slinky dresses of any kind, unless they're riding someone else's curves. She had been deeply relieved when the divorce meant she could finally banish the spaghetti-strapped designer albatross to a box deep beneath her bed. It had summed up, in a single silky nutshell, all the miscommunications that had eventually taken a Louisville slugger to that relationship's kneecaps. Picking her way across the hurricane wreckage of her tiny flat, she entertains a fleeting hope that maybe the mystery ransacker used the dress as a parachute while somersaulting his way out the open window. No such luck. Her mattress is pushed off its bed frame. The box is out and open, but the dress remains neatly folded inside. She hisses in frustration. Off come her comfortable slacks and the security blanket coziness of her trench coat. On slithers the dress. She applies makeup and makes a stab at taming the defiant kink of her thick, curly hair, wielding a straightening iron and pomade, like they're a chair and bullwhip. She pulls on the matching full-length gloves and crams Kresnik's revolver into the bottom of her evening bag to complete the ensemble. When Knox is done, the woman glaring out from the vanity mirror looks glamorous, feminine, and about two minor irritations away from biting the head off a pigeon. Ethel Moses my ass, she says to her reflection. 
No way in hell is she calling Abe to ferry her to this shindig. He finds out what Pack's gotten her into, and he's more than liable to hogtie Knox and throw her in the trunk of his cab for safekeeping. She'll just take her chances on the subway. And if the wicker rattan seats happen to snag and rip her dress, all the better. The train vomits Knox and a belly full of other passengers onto the platform at Grand Central. She sprints up the stairs and into the open air as fast as her kitten heels allow. Six blocks later, she spots Pack, decked out in an expensive-looking white tux, loitering outside the Morgan Library's main entrance. He gives her a surprised once-over as she ascends the marble stairs. Give me a smoke, she says by way of greeting. And good evening to you, too. Anyone ever tell you your bedside manner is the absolute pits? Nice dress, by the way. Please. I look like gangrene. She snatches the extended cigarette. Her hand is absolutely, definitely not shaking as she fishes her Zippo out of the evening bag and lights up. The nicotine hits her system like a shot of sedative, straight to the carotid. What's the plan? How am I supposed to get into this shindig? Pack fishes around in his pockets and comes up with a slip of red paper. A drawing of a woman's lips is stamped in the middle, quirked in a disembodied half-smile. There's a massive fireplace in Morgan's study. One of his Gutenberg Bibles will be on the mantel above. If you try and pick it up... Wait. One of? puta. How many did he own? Three, if you must know. But this one's a replica. If you try and pick it up, as I was saying, you'll find out that it's actually a lever. A passageway in the fireplace should open up. Go down the stairs, inside. Rap four times on the door at the bottom. Show that invite to the usher, and he'll let you into Nocturne. And what'll you be doing during all of this? He smiles with a little more relish than Knox feels comfortable observing up close. There's a fine line between loving your job and really loving your job. Sneaking, he says. Snooping. Scooping. You know, all that stuff I'm good at. Noted. Knox ashes her cigarette on one of the marble pillars. Well, let's go crash a party then. It's a who's who of who's who. The beautiful and the influential. The ones with faces ubiquitous as God, and Coca-Cola rubbing hips and lips with those so powerful, they look like nobody at all. They swirl and glitter and dart, like a school of minnows. Sequins wink, glasses clink. Tipsy laughter and raised voices hum from shadowy velvet-lined booths with a wattage old Tommy Edison would strain at the leash to bottle and sell, if he weren't deader than a dodo. The lighting is comfortably dim. On stage, a jazz quartet plucks and thrums and blows for all they're worth, walking that fine tightrope all players hired to score rich people's memories have to toe, between drowning out the party and playing the crowd to sleep. Cigarette girls slip through the weave of the crowd with admirable skill flirting and flitting and plying their wares. The air smells of pomade and gin and is thick as old iodine, 
with the curling genies released from a hundred Chesterfields and lucky strikes. Thrain knows how to throw a party. Nobody doesn't have a drink in their hand. And the only thing that seems to flow more plentifully than booze is conversation. It's also, Knox immediately takes note, deeply, deeply white. The only other brown faces in the room belong to the band members, segregated away from the action up on stage. She's not surprised. Whatever the opposite of surprised is, that's how Knox feels, staring across the sea of platinum curls and bloodless faces. But it's not exactly the kind of party she gets invited to regularly. It's hard not to feel just a little exposed, lonely, conspicuous, like she's got a great big neon sign flashing does not belong here right above her head. Knox rolls up her metaphorical sleeves, takes a deep breath, and plunges into the crowd. Navigating the room is half improvisational dance routine, half swimming the English Channel with a smile. Spin to avoid a stumbling movie starlet with smeared mascara. Reach out to snag a drink from a waiter's tray, lifting your arm just in time to avoid the movie starlet's equally soused bow from ramming into it at top speed. Let the crowd buffet you this way and that until you find the easiest current through. Sip your watered-down last word, ignoring the eyes that snag on your dress and face with a kind of poisonous, languid half-interest. Flag down a passing cigarette girl and flirt to try to make yourself feel better. Buy a smoke and pretend not to notice when her little tray of foil-wrapped cigars and chewing gum momentarily becomes a dispensary for a pile of severed, writhing tongues. Take another drink to wash the vision away. Push through. Push on. Green. Bella Green, isn't it? Soft white fingers dig into Knox's bare shoulder. She spins around and finds herself face to face with Coco Creeling, heir apparent to the Creeling's chocolate empire. Creeling's chocolate bars had been a high barter item during the war. Every boy on the front line who ended up in Knox's tent seemed to have one in his pocket, and stamped on each wrapper had been the Creeling's mascot, a plump, smiling baby girl with chocolate smeared all over her mouth. Now here is that same infant, peering boozily into Knox's face with a mother-of-pearl cigarette holder in one hand and the volcanic fumes of about six vodka martinis on her breath. Oh, goodness! I've wanted to meet you for so long. And here you are. I've heard so much about you from Alistair. He says Pierpont would have been an absolute mess without you. Says you run most everything up there. I always take anything Alistair says with a grain or two because you know how Alistair can get. But in your case, if Knox tells this woman, I'm sorry, you've mistaken me for some other presumably brown woman because you couldn't tell us apart if someone put a revolver to your head with every chamber loaded. It's going to be deeply embarrassing and maybe bring down more attention on Knox than she'd like. If she goes along with it, her bluff could get called by someone who actually does know the real Bella Green. Oh, have you met Stephen yet? You must come by and say hello. Here, come, come, I'll introduce you. He's right over. Stephen! Stephen, look who's here! There's no chance to say or do anything before Knox is suddenly being stumble-dragged through the crowd to a booth a few yards away. 
A jolly throng of partygoers clusters thickly here. Coco elbows her way through, pulling Knox behind her. There are so many bodies packed together, Knox is pretty sure she just dumped half her last word down someone's back. She can't see the hand holding it, but someone's shrieking in surprise, and someone else is guffawing. And everything is noise and crunch and hum, and other people's skin and... Stephen! Coco crows up ahead. Stephen Thrain! Look who I found! The crowd thins. There's a table. Across it, a drooping redhead seated at his side, sits a man with a burning barn for a head. Knox can see the flames, smell burning flesh, hear animals shrieking inside. Stephen Thrain, the man of the hour. Hello, Coco, his voice says. The doors to the barn burst open and horses spill from the place where his mouth might go, their manes and tails alight. And who's this that you have brought me? Close your eyes. Count to ten. Thrain is iron-haired, angular, immaculately dressed, and immaculately quaffed. His posture is perfect. Not a hair springs disobedient from his oily scalp. His expression is neutral and unruffled. The party pulses on around them, but Thrain's is still and cool as the block of ice in his old-fashioned. His eyes meet Knox's. Stephen, you didn't tell me Bella Green was coming. Coco whines. Thrain doesn't even deign to look her way. You knew I'd been wanting to meet her for absolute ages, and... Yes, it is quite a remarkable stroke of luck that we find ourselves touched by this evening, is it not? My dear Coco, could you do me a favor and run and fetch Stan and Frank? I believe they are at the senator's table. Try there first. His voice is coldly mellifluous. Perhaps you can catch up with Miss Green later. A protesting pout dies on her lips, and the crestfallen heiress totters back into the crowd. Thrain gestures to an empty space in the booth. Please, sit. Knox does as she's told. She feels hypnotized by his gaze. It takes a struggle of will to pull her eyes away. Mr. Thrain, she begins, this is deeply embarrassing, but I'm not... You are not Bella Green, I know. You are Miss Morgan Knox, the private investigator. Shit. Her surprise is brief, and she does her best to keep it off her face. That answers the question of who's been tailing her, and who most probably made a mess of her apartment. I suppose you'll be having me escorted off the premises now? On the contrary, Miss Knox. I've wished to speak privately with you for quite some time. You are a woman of singular talents. Much like the woman poor Coco mistook you for, you are an exceptional specimen of an inferior race. All of a sudden, Knox isn't frozen anymore. She's hot all over, body and soul both. Fists clenching so hard beneath the table, she's afraid the cocktail glass in her right hand will shatter. Her jaw muscles carefully grind her teeth to talcum. Close your eyes. Count to ten. The racist bastard sitting across from her stays a racist bastard. Because some monsters you can't wish away. 
but the urge to start socking him in the teeth until her knuckles bleed stays under shaky control. She takes a deep steadying breath and asks, And what talents might those be? The investigative kind. My dear mentor, Volkan Sivarek, mentioned you shortly before his unfortunate death. What a tragedy his loss was. Thrain sounds about as stricken and overcome with emotion as somebody commenting on a perfect April morning. His was a brilliant mind. He had an understanding of how the world truly operates that is rare in this day and age. I owe him my political career. You were close, were you? A shrug. I did not say that Vulcan was close to anyone, merely that he was brilliant. So he was hard to get along with, you would say? Difficult to buddy up to? I'm afraid I don't understand the question, Miss Knox. Ask three people whether you or myself are easy to get along with, and I suspect you will receive three diametrically opposed replies. Knox isn't so sure about that. She's pretty sure even her nearest and dearest would tug their collars a little if someone asked them point-blank if she were easy to get on with. Here's an easier question, Mr. Thrain. Where were you on the night Volkan Sivarek died? No hesitation this time. Planning this very fundraiser with Laszlo Kovacs at my offices in the Empire State Building. I'm not sure what you may be implying, but you may consult Kovacs or the Night Watchman if you have any doubts as to my truthfulness in this matter. Cool as an Arctic cucumber. No implications, just trying to nail down all the facts. She swirls the sticky dregs of her drink, stalling for time, trying to plan a new angle of attack. Mind if I ask you one more question? Ask as many as you like. What did Sivarek understand about the world that everybody else is missing, exactly? Thrain smiles thinly. It sits on his lips like a newborn on a bed of nails. That it is rotten to the very foundations, Miss Knox, he replies, corrupt from the apple and the serpent on. The only way to navigate such a twisted rhythm is to match its syncopations. The redhead drooped at Thrain's side stirs, moaning faintly. She tries to sit up, only to flop, bonelessly back against his shoulder. Steven. She whines, without opening her eyes. My head hurts something awful. I wanna, I want another little taste of that stuff Laszlo had. Just till my head stops hurting. It's so loud in here. Thrain glances at her with distant, open distaste. Knox is used to seeing that expression on rich people's faces when they're looking down their noses at homeless folks on the street. But it's far less common to see it passing between two people of equal societal footing. Without unsteepling his hands, he gives her a little elbow nudge. She slumps over in the opposite direction. You've had enough, I think, he says. A gesture of his hand summons two burly men to the table. Stan, Frank, there you are. Would you be so kind as to make sure Mrs. Thrain is delivered home safely? She's feeling a bit under the weather. The word home seems to galvanize the woman. She struggles to open her eyes, 
listlessly wriggling against the meaty hands lifting her from her resting place. Her dress slips and gives the whole wide club an eyeful of the bounty womanhood blessed her with. Knox looks away out of instinctive politeness. Stephen, no, don't send me home. I gotta, I gotta, the kids can't see me like this, please. He waves her and the men bearing her away like he's shooing a fly from his dinner. Mrs. Thrain still slurring protests. A wave of tittering laughter follows their progress. His wife, Ave Maria, some marriage. Rotten, as I was saying, Miss Knox, Thrain says, rubbing distastefully at a bit of drool on his shoulder. Even a woman of my wife's breeding and stature is infected by it. Can you imagine what the lower echelons of society will be like in 10 or 20 years if our current course isn't changed drastically? The dilution from without? A firm hand is needed on the tiller. Your hand, Mr. Thrain? Who better? He sounds more sincere about his world-fixing qualifications than he has about anything else he's said to Knox so far. Mayor is merely the beginning. But even I cannot change this world alone. There are certain things I need. Certain... items. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. When he speaks again, his voice is pitched conspiratorially low, so that she can barely hear it over the cheerful buzz of the partygoers. Before his death, Sivarek was searching for a certain book, the Black Sea Codex. He knows she has the little book. He knows. Like dominoes, the who of who has been following her tips face first into the why, knocking both questions neatly over. That leaves a big piece standing untouched on the table. How? How on earth does Stephen Thrain know about that? She's the only one who knows what she found in Craddock's flat, right? Right? It is a tome of great power, or so he believed, and so I too believe this must be so. The one who has possession of the knowledge inside, there is no telling how high he may climb. One could storm the very gates of reality with such a relic. Little red spots of color have broken out on each of Thrain's cheeks. Something is leaping and writhing excitedly behind the cemetery glass of his dead blue eyes. It's the first real emotion she's seen him express. And the one who hands him the prize stands to benefit immensely. I'm not sure why you're telling me this, Mr. Thrain, she says. Even if I did have this book, Turns out it's incredibly easy to lie stone-faced to racist bastards. There's nothing you've got that I need. Miss Knox, everyone has a price. I know more about you than you imagine. I know about your family back on that squalid little island. I know where you live in my city. I know who you associate with and where you associate with them. 
the urge to start punching begins rising again. I give you my word. Deliver that book to me, and not only will you benefit as I rise, but so too will your friends and your family, and your community. Infrastructure requires funding, and a powerful voice raised on behalf of those who need it the most. How would you like to be that voice? One small favor could seed so many roads and schools. And who knows, a territory could even become a state someday. Knox thinks of the battered school books her cousins carry back on the island, the state of the roads uptown. Would denying this man a stupid old book really outweigh all the good that could be done if she had the ear of someone in power? Thrain Industries regularly raised entire neighborhoods to the ground. Was there any reason it couldn't uplift a community instead? The idea only stands a few seconds before collapsing like a burning tenement. What on earth would her parents think of her? Or, God forbid, her aunties? No. This man is as rotten as he claims the world around him to be. Maybe that's why it's all he sees. Sorry. I really don't know anything about this book, she says. But if I hear anything, I'll let you know. Another lie. She wouldn't give this jumped-up slime ball the inside straight on how to find a decoder ring in a box of Cracker Jack. A final spasm of emotion cracks the calm surface of Thrain's face. He looks like he's about to reach across the table and slap her with one of his manicured hands. Oh, please, Knox thinks. Please go ahead and try it, so I have an excuse to give you a belly full of broken teeth on behalf of my squalid little island. It'll be worth every bit of misery I catch from your lawyers and hired goons. She wants to break his nose. She wants to ruin her stupid ugly dress with his blood so that she has an excuse to never wear it again. But the strike never comes. Thrain ices back over as quickly as he thawed. He adjusts his tie and re-steeples his fingers, like a man shuffling a deck of cards. Very well, Miss Knox, he says. But please remember, the offer stands. His gaze slowly slides to a space just over her left shoulder and sticks there. Hello, Laszlo, he says. I was wondering where you had wandered off to. Like hell you were, an amiable voice chirps. Hogging all the best company for yourself, Stephen? Some pal you are. Do a guy a favor and see how you get paid back for it. A rat falls, squeaking to the tabletop. Then another. His head is a squirming knot of hungry rats, fighting amongst themselves over a dead baby. Close your eyes. Count to ten. Laszlo Kovacs is not a handsome man. Knox's immediate impression is of a pug, one of her aunties once owned. A bug-eyed creature who lifted his leg on the piano and the armchair. And lastly of all, the leg of a visiting Monsignor. He looks unsettlingly like Peter Lorre, the skulking star of a movie she saw a month or two back about a killer of children. What he lacks in looks, though, he makes up for in attire. His waistcoat is rose silk, printed with gold flowers. His slacks are perfectly pressed, the knot of his necktie an engineering wonder. If you kept your eyes below the chin, the little man looked like a million bucks. Next to him, 
Thrain came off lifeless, for all his starched self-importance. Money can buy the best clothes, but it can't buy a single iota of style. Laszlo Kovacs, Morgan Knox, Thrain says. Mr. Kovacs is the owner of this establishment. He throws a fine little party, wouldn't you agree? My parties aren't little, Kovacs says sourly. His handshake is bony and brisk. My parties are the best. Else you wouldn't be having this little get-together here. But hey, be honest. Is it too little for you, Stephen? Is there something missing? Are the girls too ugly? Is there not enough liquor to go around? Because I can charge you for an upgrade if you feel like you're missing out. That won't be necessary, Laszlo. Everything is entirely adequate. I was just discussing some business with Miss Knox, so perhaps you could run along and come back later. She'll be dead from boredom if I leave her with you all night. Look at that. Her glass is completely empty. He makes a tutting sound. You want a top-up, miss? Knox tries a smile. I wouldn't want to be any trouble. Oh, no, no, no. No trouble at all. Even if it were, I'm a merciful sort, you know? I couldn't look my priest in the eye the next time he dropped in to visit the whores if I didn't rescue you from Stephen's fabulous conversation skills. You know he thinks I'm coarse. You're right, Laszlo. I'm not sure where I ever got that idea. Whatever. I got something coarse for you right here, you jumped-up prick. Kovacs flips him the bird before offering Knox his arm. Come on, I'll show you around the place. The crowd's thinned out somewhat since Knox arrived, although there are still plenty of warm bodies to go around. Kovacs weaves and darts through the clumps of revelers, like a cranky eel. He barks orders at lagging waitstaff as he passes, a little king striding through his castle. Bought this club 50% with my own money, he says. I mean, technically I didn't buy it. Old man Morgan offered to rent me the space. But what's in the space, that's all mine. Mine and Sivarex. I owe that old bastard a lot. J.P. Morgan Jr. wouldn't have pissed on me if I was on fire if it weren't for Sivarex introducing us. He leads Knox to the bar, a horseshoe-shaped hunk of polished mahogany clotted with folks trying to get a drink and makes an imperious gesture at the bartender. Get the lady a Manhattan, would you, Lloyd? Yes, sir. The bartender gives Knox an unimpressed once-over, but does as he's told. Right away, sir. Kovacs turns back to Knox. So, you're the lady detective, the one Siverek mentioned before he got vaporized. You don't sound too broken up about his death. Didn't you just say you two were friends? Owed the old bastard a lot? Etc., etc. A short, sharp bark of laughter. <laughs> friends? With Volkan Sivarek? I didn't murder him, if that's where you're headed. But there's a whole lot of space between inviting a guy to Christmas dinner and turning him into a Halloween decoration. Our relationship was strictly business. Thrain mentioned you two were together the night the old man died. That's right. Planning tonight's doings. Spending a romantic evening alone with Stephen Thrain isn't on my top ten list for a fun night out. But it gave me a good alibi, at least. Knox isn't sure how tight an alibi it is, but lets the matter lie for the moment. You said you funded this place partially with your own money? You betcha. 
Worked my ass off from the bottom to get where I am today. Not like Mr. Ice King over there. He makes a disgusted gesture in the general direction of Thrain. Thinks he's better than everybody because he was born with a silver spoon lodged up his keister. Know who my daddy was? Who? Got me. I was just wondering if maybe you knew. <laughs> he smirks at his own joke. Had a stepdad who used to take me out with him to all the bars. I saw how happy everybody was there, the bartenders most of all, and I thought, I want that. I give people what they need to be happy, and they give me a little financial compensation in return. Only people think that's a bad thing are the Bible thumpers and the nags. Why shouldn't I give people what they want? For a fee. For a fee, Kovacs echoes. I ain't running a charity, obviously. Lloyd the bartender reappears, and wordlessly slides over a perfect Manhattan. Kovacs nods his thanks and hands the drink to Knox. Hope you wanted a Manhattan, he says. That's fine, thanks. If there's something else you'd like, I'm sure we can come up with it. Really, I'm fine. It's a good Manhattan. And it is. It's one of the best she's ever had. Sallow-faced Lloyd is one hell of a bartender. Are you, though? Knox raises an eyebrow at him over the rim of her glass. I just... look. You work in this business long enough, you develop a kind of sixth sense about people. What they need, how they're feeling, all that kind of stuff. If you'll allow me to be blunt, you don't look like a lady who's doing too good. You got bags beneath your eyes you could drown kittens in. Maybe you're not sleeping too good. We get a lot of people who were in the war looking the way you do. They leave looking a lot happier than they did coming in. He leans closer. Knox fights back the unholy desire to poke him in one of his bulging eyes. You don't gotta suffer, he says. I've heard about you, Morgan Knox. Is it women you want? Fellas? Bit of both? I can set you up so you'll never sleep alone again. If you got nightmares, we can fix it so you never dream. But there are things I want, too. I'll just bet there are. Knox can already see where this is going. Kovacs shrugs. I'm only human. I want to see Thrain fall on his ass in a mud puddle. I want to die in a tragic pussy avalanche. And I want that book Sivarek was after before he died. The Black Sea Codex. There it is. Imagine what I could do with a thing like that. I could change things so that everybody got what they wanted. If they came to you. For a fee. Even God likes a little burnt sacrifice every now and then. Somebody's got to be holding one end of the supply chain. Might as well be me. His voice is rising to a slightly desperate pitch, despite the careless air he tries to exude. I'm serious, Knox. You get me that book, and you get a lifetime backstage pass to every earthly pleasure ever devised by man or nature. If shell shock is what's ailing you, I got a guy in a lab making yellow stuff in an eyedropper that'll clear all that right up. You can't get it from anybody but my guy. Hand over the Black Sea Codex and I'll give you a vial right now. What do you say? Company to help Knox forget her loneliness, and drugs to exorcise the horrors. The idea is tempting. Or it might be if she were a different person. It would be wonderful to be free of the visions and the memories. Really free, not just chained to a different nightmare.
as a thrall to a pimp and pusher. Close your eyes. Count to ten. I don't know where your book is, Knox says. She's developed a weird respect for Laszlo Kovacs. He's the worst kind of human. An opportunistic parasite, masquerading as a philanthropist. But at least he knows it. After spending time with Thrain, that counts for something. Have it your way, lady. He doesn't lose his cool like Thrain. Just sounds a little resigned. A little disgusted. Can I at least introduce you to the guy making my product? Goes by Klein. Weird bastard, but he may be able to help you with some of your problems. You want him? Look for the table with nobody else at it. He's not exactly what you'd call the life of the party. Not the life of the party is an understatement. The five feet around Werner Klein's booth are conspicuously free of friends, well-wishers, stragglers, or anything else resembling an entourage, like an invisible velvet rope has been strung up. Shadows writhe and twist in the empty space. Bodies hang suspended from whorls of barbed wire, frozen in their final agonized contortions, and the only way on is through. Close your eyes. Count to ten. Werner Klein doesn't look up as Knox approaches. He's studying a sheaf of papers by the dim glow of the table's candle. When he finally glances at her, the light catches the lenses of his spectacles, so that all she can see is the reflected flicker of cold white flame where his eyes should go. Morgan Knox, I presume, he says, before she even has a chance to speak. I've been expecting you. Please, sit. At this point, she's entirely unsurprised that Klein already knows who she is. Seems like I'm Little Miss Popular tonight, she says. You're the third person in two hours who's anticipated my arrival. Does that disturb you, Miss Knox? A frank question deserves a frank answer. A little. There's a reason I don't send notices to the Times and the Herald Tribune when I go out for a smoke or put on my pajamas. Fair enough. I should probably feel much the same in your situation. And I apologize for any emotional discomfort my associates and I may have inadvertently caused you. It's the Sivarek connection, you must understand by now. You quite impressed him in your brief meeting. Yeah, so I've been told. Any idea why exactly your buddy was so damn taken with me? Klein pushes his spectacles up his nose. I'm afraid I cannot claim him as a buddy, as you put it. I have sacrificed friendship upon the altar of my work. I pray someday it benefits the world in equal measure to those creature comforts I have lost. He smiles, but the expression doesn't reach his eyes. Where were you on the night of Vulcan Sivarek's death, Dr. Klein? Any chance you were with Thrain and Kovacs? I was not. I was in a session with a patient of mine on that evening. As to Mr. Sivarek's interest in you, does it surprise you that someone might find one such as yourself fascinating? A private investigator of your sex is rare enough, and that's not even taking into consideration your service record. Most veterans I meet have not been as adept at recovering from their experiences. You are extraordinarily lucky. Lucky. 
Yeah. On my way here, I watched a baby liquefy in her mother's arms like an ice cream cone on a radiator. You see a lot of veterans in your line of work, Dr. Klein? Quite a few, yes. And what exactly is that line of work? What kind of doctor are you? She already knows, of course. She just wants to hear it from his own mouth. My field of study is not unlike yours, Miss Knox. I am an investigator of the mind. Clients come to me seeking clarity. The human psyche is as shadowed and full of mysteries as any Bowery alleyway. I offer a hand in the darkness. My experience means I can see and identify the fractured places others may miss in themselves, which is quite useful in repairing them. Much as it pains Knox to admit it, that actually makes a fair bit of sense. Every case she finds herself on starts with a twisted thought in somebody's brain. Sounds like a very noble line of work, she says, trying to sound droll. It is greatly rewarding. You were a nurse, were you not? Surely you remember the satisfaction in healing a traumatized body. It is as addictive in its own way as any narcotic. Yes. No argument there, either. Every boy who left her tent alive had felt like a small victory. A cigarette girl crosses the no-man's land between Klein's booth and the rest of the party. Cigars? She chirps at them. Cigarettes? The jaunty pillbox hat atop her head slips, revealing a pulsating crack in her skull. Pinkish-gray brain matter is slowly leaking through, staining her platinum curls. Cigars? Cigarettes? Close your eyes. Count to ten. When Knox opens them again, the cigarette girl has moved on, and Klein is staring at her with a look of interest. Miss Knox, may I ask you a more personal question? Go ahead. A nurse's primary function is to facilitate the recovery of her patient. This is good. This is as it should be. But what happens when the injured party is the caretaker herself? Who heals her trauma? Here we go. I'm not, I will not argue with your own self-assessment, for I can see you are a woman of, how do you say, determined temperament. Here is what I will say, and you may or may not choose to listen as you see fit. You are not alone. Many came back from the trenches marked in ways no physician could see or treat. They are haunted by phantoms, pursued by shadows that seem to dance on the pinhead of madness. The voices of the dead whisper in their ears, until sometimes the only way out seems to be the razor, or the bridge, the noose, or the madhouse. It feels like someone just pointed a spotlight directly at Knox's brain. Part of her wants to run. Part of her is so relieved she wants to break down weeping. There are others. She's not alone. The visions, the voices. This is a known affliction, not a lone instance of a woman slowly slipping off her rocker. Provided, of course, that Klein is in any way a trustworthy source and isn't spinning her a really solid-looking line of horseshit. Is this the part where you offer to help me in exchange for the Black Sea Codex? She says. Because that's where this is going, right? You help me out, and I give you the book? 
Klein shrugs. He pulls a business card from his breast pocket and slides it across the tablecloth. I will not lie and say that I have no interest in the Black Sea Codex. It is a Rosetta Stone that could decrypt many things, including the secrets of the human mind. If you happen to come across it and think me worthy of such a courtesy, I will be more grateful than words can say. In the meantime, however, if you ever wish to speak to me professionally, here is my card. Do not hesitate to contact me, book or no book. I would love a chance to speak to you about your experiences in the war. The evening deepens. The crowd thins. The partygoers disperse pollen-like to other parts of the city, to hotel rooms and less exclusive clubs, and all the other places a drunken night of debauchery deposits those who never have to worry about picking up the tab. Knox keeps mingling. She listens in on a conversation between the third son of the city's district attorney and a slim, pretty young thing who may or may not be his boyfriend. She sidles up to the bar and requests another last word from Lloyd, enjoying the way it liquefies the tensed muscles in her shoulders and back. The entire mood of the place is mellowing to the satiated, half-slitted eye of a well-fed house cat. Someone taps her on the shoulder. She won. Dig anything up? Just the usual affairs and drunken canoodling. He sounds disappointed. How about you? Any leads? Well, I had a few drinks. Got mistaken for someone named Bella Green. The Morgan's lady librarian. Very fashionable. Very well-connected. Oh, and also, Thrain and Kovacs knew I was coming, and both of them made damn good attempts at bribing me. She doesn't mention Klein for whatever reason. She definitely doesn't mention the Black Sea Codex. Who exactly did you get the tip-off about this fundraiser from again? What? They knew I was coming, Pack. They knew stuff they shouldn't. I'm not saying your new name is Patsy, but you may be getting a pocket square with that alias monogrammed on it for your next birthday. He looks offended, furious, incredulous, and deeply confused all at the same time. It's a grisly rush hour pileup of emotions. I was not compromised. If you're being tailed, that's your own sloppy fault. And not because you're not as good at this as you think? Or because he set you up, the voice of Danny adds helpfully inside her head. You've done me a lot of favors in the past, and I'm grateful. Don't think I'm not, but... I am exactly as good at this as I think I am. I don't know what you're implying. A blad of instruments tuning up and a smattering of applause drown him out. Something's happening on stage. Not something. Someone. Leclerc. She's dressed all in red. A slim blonde artery of a woman with a half smile like a slit wrist. Her hands are wrapped around the microphone stand white fingers occasionally stroking the metal with strange tenderness. She's not Knox's type, but Knox is reasonably sure there's not a man nor woman alive in the club in that moment who doesn't envy the mic just a little. Her entire body sways with the music. It isn't a tune Knox recognizes. The melody is wrong. It makes the hair on the back of her neck stand at full attention. It's a song made out of broken bones set poorly. Notes sliding into one another, 
like baby carriages juddering down impossibly high flights of stairs. Leclerc opens her perfect mouth and begins to sing. Her voice is as sinuous as the rest of her, but the words are in a fell language Knox can't place. The air in the club seems to darken and thicken. Almost without thinking, she reaches down and rips a ragged strip of green fabric from the hem of her dress. She elbows Pack, who is staring transfixed at Leclerc. Knox? Stuff this in your ears, now. Stuff it? Now, trust me. Knox has no idea how she knows this is the right thing to do. But if the war taught her anything, it's that gut hunches aren't a thing you ignore when they come on this strong. She crams what's left of the hem into her own ears. Leclerc's voice muffles into indecipherability. The other partygoers are swaying to the unheard music. Some of them are smiling faintly. Others have begun to weep uncontrollably. Every musician on stage has tears running down his face. All the cigarette girls, the waiters with their trays full of drinks. They look like they've heard the sound of the person they love most in the world being snuffed like a candle. Slowly, stiffly, as if they're marionettes puppeteered by Leclerc's song, the weeping ones begin filtering out of the club. First the cigarette girls, then the waitstaff, then lastly, one by one, the musicians, until the room is only half full, and Leclerc stands alone on stage, eyes closed rapturously as she croons. The ones left standing, the most important partygoers, the highest echelons of the guest list, are pairing off in knots of threes and fours, stroking each other's faces and chests and any other body part that comes within reach. And then, Knox sees the masks. Each guest has a mask in their hand, drawn from who knows where. Some are ornate and animalistic. Others are simple black slips of silk. As Leclerc's performance reaches its climax, they pull off the skin of their own faces and put them on over the bare muscle and bone underneath. Close your eyes. Count to ten. Leclerc beams down at her audience. Knox suddenly realizes how exposed she and Pac are. She grabs him by the elbow and drags him into a side booth at a half crouch, yanking the hem out of her ears as she goes. We need masks right now, or our goose is cooked, she hisses. Are you crazy? We need to get out of here right now. This is going way beyond anything I signed up for. Did you hear that song? Did you see those? Look, this may be our best chance to find out what Sivarik's pals are really up to. Here. She hoists her leg in an unladylike fashion that would horrify her sainted mother, yanking her garter belt loose. Next to go are the evening gloves, twin elbow-length sheddings of green silk. You got your penknife on you? Yeah, but... Give it here. Pack doesn't bother arguing. He fishes out the knife and hands it over. A few frantic seconds of surgery on the gloves and the elastic garter, and they have two green silk masks. They don't look like much, but it's better than nothing. Now, Knox mutters, this is where we pray Lady Lux in a kissing mood. Leclerc has vanished. The crowd mills, restlessly. 
Knox and Pack stick to the fringes of the room, trying to blend in with the shadows as best they can. Cymbals crash. Strange pipes twitter and flutes somewhere behind the curtains. An eerie procession slowly shuffles onto the stage. There are four of them draped and hooded in robes of black velvet. Their masks are leather, tooled into the snouts of snarling, slavering wolves. One carries a silver pitcher. Another holds a matching chalice. The final two drag a sobbing, struggling young woman between them. Knox was pretty sure things couldn't get any weirder, but she appears to be looking at a full-on, honest-to-goodness cult of some kind, operating in the nightclub beneath Morgan's library. One of the hooded figures, the leader, presumably, raises their arms in a gesture of benediction. Almost simultaneously, a faint hissing begins. Knox thinks she's imagining the noise until she notices Pack looking around as well. Do you hear that? He whispers. She nods tersely. What's it mean? Nothing good. Back on stage, the lead wolf mask has begun chanting in a deep, booming voice. The words are guttural, sibilant, unlike any language Knox has ever heard. Around them, the crowd lifts their voices to match in a perfect, eerie echo. The room seems to darken. The air thickens. Knox's vision swims as a sharp smell like crushed nettles fills her nose. Still chanting, the cultist with the pitcher approaches the cultist with the chalice. Something black and viscous is decanted into the cup. The girl weeps and struggles against the pale hands that pin her arms fast, begging for mercy. The chalice bearer approaches. Knox, gently but firmly, tilts the girl's chin back with their free hand. Knox, do you see that stuff in the air? I think, I think it's gas, gas, masks on, masks on now, and pours the ichor directly into the teenager's protesting mouth. Oh, Jesus, Knox, what's wrong with your face? Pack is staring at her with an expression of sudden, unfocused horror. Knox reaches for her gas mask, only to find nothing there. Did she leave it back in the hospital tent? One of the first things they drilled into you when you arrived was to always keep your mask handy. And here she is, wandering the trenches, unprotected, like a muzzy-headed fool. Trenches? No, that's wrong. Not trenches. A nightclub. A nightclub slowly filling with gas, made of ghosts. Where cultists chant, and flutes pipe, and a girl on a stage dribbles black ink from her nose, and the corners of her mouth sputtering and coughing. They need to get out of here. She needs to grab Pack, but it's hard to see him through the cloud of green-brown ghosts roiling up from the club's floor. All those boys she couldn't save come back to blister her skin. The crowd roars. Pack begins to scream at the top of his lungs, great shrieks free of all sense or meaning. On stage, the girl's face has gone slack. Her eyes have turned a familiar, oily black. We have to get out of here. We have to go now. The words loop in Knox's head like a needle stuck in a groove, over and over. The back. Maybe they can make it out through the back. If she can just get Pack to shut up before the din dies down and somebody notices. 
She thinks the rifle report is in her head at first, that sharp crack, so recognizable from her memories of the war. Then she sees others reacting to it, the instantaneous panic as the crowd breaks apart and the cultists scatter and the poor freckle-faced girl falls with a neat little hole between her blackened eyes. A second shot and the lead cultist is down. Screams and smoke fill the air. Eager flames erupt, climbing the velvet curtains, tonguing the acoustic tiles that line the ceiling. The other three wolf masks exit stage left in an undignified, unceremonious hurry. Knox bumbles her way through the gas and smoke, buffeted by fleeing partygoers. Her lungs are burning. Ghosts keep leeching out of the earth to claw at her calves and ankles. Pack's still screaming. It's all she can do to drag him along. We have to get out of here. We have to go, now. One foot after the other, kicking off the rotten, blistered hands of the dead. They want her to join them, but there's no time. I'm sorry, she whispers. I can't stop. I'm sorry. The world is an enormous wound, a great ragged, suppurating hole in the sky that she falls through to land heavily on her side. She's lost hold of Pack's hand. She can't hear him screaming anymore. She tries to stand so she can look for him, but her legs are on strike, and it's easier to breathe down here on the floor. Close your eyes. Count to ten. Somewhere, a cook fire is burning. Dinner will be ready soon. Just close your eyes and count to ten. Someone is picking Knox up and hoisting her over their shoulder like a sack of cement. Someone is striding through the gas and the flames and the shrieking chaos of Nocturne. They smell like cordite and leather and unwashed clothes. Their footsteps are reassuringly steady. Knox's father is carrying her home from the beach. Knox's husband is carrying her over the threshold. Orderlies are carrying Knox back to her cell. Is this what being dead is like? Does your consciousness ping from memory to memory, all times happening at once? Cool, fresh air. The stink of garbage and wet pavement. Someone is gently depositing Knox onto the ground. Someone is sighing and nudging her with the toe of their boot. Are they dead then, Pa? Chirps a little girl's voice. A grunt. No, says a man, his words strangely slurred. There's something maddeningly familiar about the way he talks, but Knox can't grab onto the thread to unravel it. She swipes at it, but her hands are smoke. Bad a minute, and they may be, though. Can we help them? No time. Done all I can. Done too much. Oh. The girl sounds thoughtful, but doesn't argue. How sad. Together, big and little, light and heavy. Their footsteps turn and recede into the night. Sirens are bawling. Someone is shaking Knox by the shoulder. A voice with a French lilt is repeating her name insistently. Knox! Knox! You must wake up! Knox? Can you hear me? She cracks an eye. Leclerc. 
Nox! Oh, thank God! I managed to pull you and your friend out, but I think you have both been exposed to a grave and terrible poison. Poison? Yes. I have a small amount of antidote, but... but I'm afraid there is not enough for both you and the men. She's lying on her side in an alleyway. Leclerc hovers overhead, like an anxious angel, wringing her hands. Pack lies in a tortured coma to her left. His entire body seems racked with spasms. He is not well, Leclerc repeats. Much worse than you, although soon you will be just as bad. Knox closes her eyes again. The concrete is comfortingly cool against her feverish cheek. You said there's an antidote? She says. We, oui, but only enough for one, and... Give it to Pack. Tell him. The world is already receding from her again. This time, she lets it go without a fight. If the dead want her that badly, they can have her. Tell him he owes me another favor. You're listening to The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, narrated by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is written by Kay Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sonny Moraine. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.